Welcome to the Changing Construction podcast brought to you by Mail Manager, the Outlook add-in created by Arup to help companies get control of their email. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. My name is Guy Seward, and today we're going to be talking about engineering of the future. Very happy to announce we're joined by Ian Small, innovation champion at Acom. Hello, Ian. Hello. Would you would you like to introduce yourself and, and let our listeners know a bit about about your journey here today, a bit about your background? Uh, hi, Guy, and hi everyone. Thanks for thanks for joining us. So, so as Guy said, I'm the innovation champion at Acom. I look after uh, the Europe, Middle East, and Africa part of the business and, and my role has a, a number of functions one is to help the business to to generate new ideas and turn them into into products and value another one is to to help uh, SMEs and and startups to to find where in the business we should be we should be supporting them and then scouting for technology to help us to take innovation forward I've been working in consultancy for nearly 20 years now. I started in the water sector, solving problems for water companies. And, and over the last five or six years, I've, I've been ending up more and more working in the innovation space across a much wider remit of industry of construction and infrastructure than, than just water. Fantastic. And, and innovation champion is a job title. Well, I, I for one, rarely come across. Um, how does one find themselves in that role um, you've had you've had a pretty varied career from from what it looks like in, with the likes of Mott McDonald how, how did you fall into the world of innovation it was literally a fall into the world of innovation I've I've always been interested in new technologies and and finding better ways of delivering things and those so so when I was in the water sector I was always trying to push new technologies and how to deliver projects and and that caught the attention of some of our uh, directors at Acom when they were looking for somebody to head up an innovation and technical excellence team and I was lucky enough to be chosen to do that just just for the water business originally and then did 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 a good enough job to get to to get the notice of the wider infrastructure business and and asked to to take it on uh, more widely and it's it was a very very steep learning curve understanding what innovation's all about and and how it works in the in the corporate environment as opposed to universities or or in the public sector um so it's been it's a it's an interesting and challenging challenging world that we that we live in for for innovation at the moment great i guess i'd like to hear a bit more about that steep learning curve what any surprises when you delved into this world lots of surprises i suppose understanding the different types of innovation that there are from incremental adjacent and uh, transformational innovation and then understanding quite how few projects actually succeed um, we come from a or i work in an industry that that expects to get things right first time our clients expect us to to deliver something and it to be right first time and suddenly when you're looking at innovation you're looking at projects that that often uh, while successful, don't deliver what you said you were going to deliver to start with because of things that you learn through the process. And also that innovation is about taking a risk and doing something that you've not done before. And if that doesn't work, as long as you learn something, that's not necessarily a problem. So innovation is very different to, to the way that we normally deliver a project and, and helping the business to understand that and helping helping our people to understand that 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 it's a good thing to put your head above the parapet and take a risk is is important in order to help move the business forward 
and it's been quite quite interesting over the over the last few months to see um, how quickly various parts of government and, and organizations can innovate when they're pushed when there's a real uh, imperative to change suddenly things that that used to take years to get organized happen in days or days or weeks and that raising your head above the parapet i guess is is such an important thing in regards to innovation and once again i'm, I'm guessing here you're, you're the expert but i guess there's a bit more leeway for someone making mistakes in the context of a project if innovation is the reason mistakes probably isn't the right way of describing it it's more about testing and having having a hypothesis that you want to test and then proving it or not proving it and then moving on to the next the next assumption that you've made within your idea and working through those until you end up with a solution that solves a specific problem for whoever your user may be whether that's you're selling a fancy new coffee cup to to millions of people or whether you're selling a, a specific piece of technical software or tool to to a team that do a very specific task um, it's all about working through experiments until you get to the best solution or and, and and by best i mean where it does what it needs to do so obviously we talk you know there's minimum viable products is a is a fairly common term that most most people understand now and so it's getting to that point as as quickly and as efficiently as possible but understanding that 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 product might not look like what your initial pitch was and so it's opening people's eyes to we don't have to be fixated on what we originally said we need to get to we're trying to find some value for the business rather than delivering the exact thing that we said and that often juxtaposed against how how we deliver projects where a client says i want a bridge it needs to go across this river or whatever it might be and it, and it needs to have all of these characteristics that they've already defined in which case it's just a fairly standard design process to to deliver that whereas if you're looking at it from an innovation perspective you might decide that a bridge is the right solution it might be that you need an airport or it might be that you need a tunnel or the best, although you know, the minimum solution might be a ferry across rather than the bridge. There's a whole different mindset about about what you're trying to get to and how you deliver it. Really interesting. Spoken about technology solutions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, and something which is always synonymous with innovation and problem-solving solutions is is AI, and and it gets spoken a lot, spoken about a lot at the moment, and you know. There's a school of thought we, we might have already passed peak enthusiasm for AI. Do you have any thoughts on that, Ian? So yes, there was a report recently by by Gartner who um, who track a whole load of uh, different sort of technologies that are coming, and they they predicting that we're past peak AI hype. But but if you talk to companies like PwC, they have a report out that says they they're predicting AI could be worth sixteen trillion dollars by 2030 which is more than the entire china economy was in in 2018 that was only about 14 trillion dollars so there's two ways that ai can go and i think for the infrastructure industry or construction industry there's some important lessons that we still haven't fully grasped and fully understood about the limitations about what we call artificial intelligence um, it's in reality Yes, it is artificial, but it's not. It's not intelligent in any way, shape, or form. It it only does 
can only do a very simple task based on whatever data we we input into it and and so I try and encourage people to talk about predictions rather than AI or, or automation because it's it's providing you with a prediction and as soon as it's only a prediction it's not providing you with certainty and often we're looking we're looking for these tools to provide us with certainty and we need to keep working to understand where AI fits into to our ecosystem of of engineering and that I think is one of the reasons why we're hitting that peak is that people are starting to understand that it isn't going to be that a one-stop shop it's not going to replace full roles you know it's not going to replace the structural engineer overnight or or a radiologist or and we're not going to be driving on autonomous cars as soon as we thought you know back in sort of 2018 2019 there was lots of hype about you know we will be sitting in autonomous cars that won't have any steering wheel at all by 2022 2023 and and you know the the rate of progress that that sector has been making has, has slowed considerably while they can do the, the the central tasks you know the common the common events like driving driving down one lane of a motorway really well as soon as as soon as something fuzzy around the edges comes in there's they really struggle understanding those limitations i think is, is taking, taking a long time to come through and again that's what one of the reasons why the way we're past that peak is that it's it's going to slow down the progress is slowing of of what we can do fascinating the i in ai i think might be from what you're saying it perhaps should be ap artificial prediction i think the the intelligence part is what's quite daunting for people perhaps particularly in this industry and delivering a project how far away are we from ai becoming really prevalent in in the context of a project do you think and do you think it's still a bit daunting so i think that in terms of being part of a project it's becoming more and more common we are starting to see tools being developed that help the engineer or the designer or the the modeler or or the asset manager whoever it is to to deliver their their day-to-day tasks providing a niche skill within that process so for example, at Acon, we've developed a, a tool called Ali, which is a machine learning tool to help us with the design process. So when we build a, a BIM model in the on in the cloud, it helps us to to understand where the where the conflicts in the design are as we do them, and it helps to reduce the number of errors within a within a project. And so that sort of tool is is providing it's it's augmenting what what our engineers do rather than replacing them and we've seen that sort of through history of as new technologies come along rather than removing the need for a particular role it, it allows people to do more it takes away some of the the time time sapping tasks so a good example is the invention of the spreadsheet you know everybody you know everybody ha- as, as used uses spreadsheets virtually every day in especially in the engineering world you know i've got i've got two open on my screen at the moment and when they were first invented people thought that meant bookkeepers were gonna were, were gonna become an obsolete role we wouldn't need people to do those simple simple sums to keep on top of our finances and, and predictions of where we're going to do but then we discovered well actually no what that allows allows those those people that were in those roles to do more they could provide us with scenarios they could predict the, they could provide more depth into their analysis because they had more time to do more analysis rather than just 
carrying out simple calculations. And we're going to see the same with artificial intelligence or artificial prediction as as that becomes more user-friendly and tools that allow less specialist people to, to, to take advantage of it. So artificial intelligence complementing someone's job as opposed to replacing it fills me with encouragement that a robot won't take my job. So are there chat well i guess of course there are what what are the challenges and are there barriers to getting to the point where we really reap the rewards from ai so machine predictions are all about using data and fundamentally that the organizations with the most organized data and the emphasis needs to be on organized are going to be able to generate the most value from from that data so a recent report by um, Cognilitica estimated that 80% of the time to generate a machine learning output is data manipulation. So 80% of the project or any project is organizing the data, cleaning the data, and only 20% is actually doing the, you know, the, the nitty gritty machine learning. And that is why it's so hard to do it at the moment. We don't have that organized data. And there are a number of reasons why we don't have that organized data. One is our leaders across all sectors, I don't really see anybody that's that's got a full grasp on this, is, is understanding how we need to organize our data better and understanding that, you know, 80% of our effort is going to be upfront before you see any output. And in our, you know, lots of people sort of say, oh, construction and infrastructure, it's a low margin business, you know, justifying that 80% investment before you see any output is is going to be quite hard. And also having the capacity to use it. We see that fintech is booming and there's lots of money to be made there. So lots of people with great engineering skills are are being dragged out of the uh, engineering sector because of there are better opportunities. And it's going to be a while before the the skills reach a a, a sufficient level within the infrastructure sector to to be able to make most use because organisations that have got the skills uh, in-house are going to be looking more to to where can they make higher margin returns rather than you know we can come to construction and make you know three four percent why not why not go and sit in finance or medical and and make you know double digits it's a bit of a no-brainer at the moment having said that unless somebody comes along and disrupts the sector and and decides they're going to put their money where their mouth is and and decide that you know the, the equivalent change of uber to taxis you know if somebody like google or or Microsoft, or, or even Amazon decide that they want to get involved, then there's that transformation could, could happen more quickly than, than currently envisage. I guess it's, it's really, really difficult to predict how long that might take. So it's really, it's, it's really hard to predict how long it might take, and it's also really hard to, to see it coming. Those massive disruptions like, like Uber turning up are, are very hard to, to spot. Um, but but the incremental changes are are a, a bit easier to to spot. Um, there's a the analogy I like to use for that is is the high jump. So back in the the 60s, uh, Dick Fosby, who happens to be a, a, a civil engineer, uh, turned up at the Mexico Olympics and and did the the first Fosby flop um, to win the uh, gold medal at the Olympics, and everyone was sort of wow, this is a transformational, you know. Uh, uh, technique for the high jump you know people are going to be able to get much higher but if you talk if you if you read about how he developed the technique it was because he couldn't do the traditional western role that, that people used to do and and as a consequence he used the, the sort of scissors kick that i learned at school and i'm sure lots of people will, will remember of, of just sort of 
throwing one leg and then the other leg over the fence. And then over time, as he pushed it higher and higher, in order to get over those higher higher heights, he had to push his hips back to to get over the top. And and it was a incremental change over two or three years that he that, that he developed the jump. It was only that he then won at the end, then turned up at the Olympics and nobody else had seen it. And wow, this is transformational. In reality, it was a very long journey to to get there. And so it's it's understanding the thing that we need to do is try and spot those trends, those signposts that will help us understand when that transformational change might be coming so that as an organisation, we can be ready for that change in any particular sort of sector or scenario. I love that analogy. Fosbury flop, I'll remember that. Almost ironic that for such a successful jump, it's called a flop. But anyhow, um, uh, moving away from AI slightly, Ian, what do you see driving innovation at the moment? Is there a a driver to change in the industry from, from your viewpoint? There's obviously the big driver for change at the moment is is COVID and how we adapt to that. And over the last sort of seven, eight months, we've seen organisations have transformed themselves from being office-based, you know, large teams all sat in rooms to remote working and, and teams meeting up on Zoom or Teams or, or whatever the technology might be. That change has been has accelerated a trend that we'd already seen. As, a, as an organisation, we had a freedom to grow as a policy, which meant if if you didn't need to be in office, you could work wherever you needed to as long as it worked for your client and it worked for your team. The pandemic just accelerated that from being a few people to everybody taking advantage of that. Innovation isn't a thing of itself. It needs, nobody innovates just, just because they can, or very few do. Most people innovate and successful innovation is because there's an imperative, there's some constraints. You don't have enough time, you don't have enough money, you need radically improve the quality, for example. Having that constraint is what drives innovation. And, and so there's a number of things that are, that are driving long-term innovation at the moment. One is, is climate change. You know, there's, there's the climate emergency. We're talking about having until 2030 to have a sufficient impact on greenhouse gas emissions to prevent you know, a catastrophic rise in temperatures. And, and the pandemic and the opportunity to have a, a green recovery, as governments around the world are talking about, is, is an opportunity that hopefully we won't miss to innovate in a in a more positive direction uh, and helping steer it. Um, and so there's having more electric vehicle infrastructure is probably going to be one of the first things that we see. But then how we deal with renewable energy and, and the challenges that, that we have from that around storage of energy when, when the sun doesn't shine, nice grey day here in, in Yorkshire, or when the wind doesn't blow in the offshore uh, wind turbines aren't aren't generating energy. There's there's a whole number of innovations that we're going to need to make the success that we'd like to see. But whether we can generate enough constraint and will within the sector and and, and the wider population to make that happen. Green recovery from COVID sounds fantastic. You know what an optimistic thing to come from such a odd situation. But how? much priority do you think that will actually take when you compare it to economic recovery from COVID out of interest? We're hopeful we can generate an, an economic recovery fairly fairly quickly once there's a sort of a vaccine uh, or we can keep the numbers of infections low because it's not a financially driven 
crisis. It's uh, it's something separate to the financial system this time round. So I'm I'm fairly hopeful that that the recovery will be quite quick. But in order to do that, you know, governments have have always the traditional approach is to invest in in new infrastructure to drive recovery. It has an initial benefit in it provides lots of jobs and you can spread it around the country quite quite easily. The secondary impact is that you then end up with some some piece of infrastructure that provides dividends for for decades into the future. So HS2 is an example of a of a large infrastructure project that's that's shovel ready. I'd always envisaged that it was going to be pushed forward when Brexit finally happens, but to help mitigate any issues of of that. But but obviously the the pandemic has pushed that forward up the agenda earlier. And you know, you can and we've had the official launch of construction for for hs2 in the in the last couple of months and ian how important do you think is digital fluency in organizations and in in particular digital fluency in more senior roles so digital fluency i think is necessary in all 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 facets of an organization you're zipping up from the from the bottom to the top and we've got this is the sort of first time that we've got four generations within working within the office we've got we've got baby boomers that are sort of starting to retire uh, all the way through to millennials that are just just at the beginnings of their careers and 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 the digital fluency varies greatly between those generations and as we've seen over the last you know seven or eight months that digital transformation can happen very quickly whether we're transforming in an efficient or effective manner because we're having to do it so quickly is is a challenge and i think we need broader understanding and it comes back to some of the things I was saying at the beginning about artificial intelligence and, and not understanding the wider you know, limitations of what it can do, but also understanding how you get to a point where it can provide that transformational benefit and how organizations and teams are set up and how they deliver their tasks is very important. So for example, if you want to add, say, a, a machine learning tool into a, into a design process, what you shouldn't do is just drop it into your existing process and, and carry on as if, as if it's just an extra member of your team. In reality, you need to review the entire process that you're going through and work out what impact that prediction or that, that machine learning tool has on how you deliver it. You know, it might remove some tasks, it might add some other tasks, and the order in which you deliver them may change as well. We, as organisations, so everybody from our leaders need to understand how it changes our strategy of, of setting our teams up and delivering our projects. The doers, the, the technical experts, need to understand how they deliver their projects is going to change over time. And I think there's still, there's still quite a big education piece to go there because the technology isn't mature enough or, or user-friendly enough for enough people to be on the, on the coalface yet. And I'll be really excited to see how it looks in however many years when that technology is mature enough to to match up. As we're coming to the end of this episode, Ian, whilst we've got an innovation champion on looking ahead for our listeners, do you have any top tips to deliver innovation success? I've written a blog post about this in the past. I, I have seven C's of innovation that crucial for any organization or any any individual even to have a success uh, for innovation so one the most important one of those is is constraint you need to have uh, something that you need to solve 
an imperative to change. And probably the, the second most important one is to celebrate uh, innovation, whether it succeeds or whether it fails, you should celebrate. But my top tip for, for innovation is making sure that you're solving the most important problem that you can, not necessarily the symptom of, of what you're doing. For example, you know, a completely different setting, but you know, if you've got um, uh, a bad back, you might take some painkillers to, to fix it, but that doesn't in reality fix it. That just masks the problem. Um, what you really need to do potentially is go and have some physio to, to solve whatever the root cause of that problem. And so when you're looking to deliver an innovation or you think there's something innovative to do, you have to spend more time than you think at the beginning working out what exactly is the problem that, that you're trying to solve. Because if you don't solve a, a burning platform, then people aren't going to, to want to use your innovation. And, and there's no point building it if nobody's going to use it. And to to summarise the the theme of of the episode, can you paint the picture? What does civil engineering and infrastructure look like in 2030? We as a sector, we're pretty good at looking at today and we're pretty good at looking tomorrow and next week and pretty good, you know, pandemic years accepted, looking at at what's going to happen next year. But, But as soon as you get more than sort of two or three years down the line, it becomes much harder, which is why most companies have strategies that, that may look three to five years ahead, but, but don't look much further than that. We completed a project recently within ACOM to look at 2030. We didn't come up with one scenario of the future. We, we built four, four plausible future worlds based on some critical uncertainties that, that we think are there. And we've, we've touched on, on them today, looking at um, whether artificial intelligence is, is going to become ubiquitous within the industry uh, or whether it doesn't, um, you know, and as, as you talked about, it's that it's the rate of change. Um, how quickly do we go from, you know, the, the state of the world today where AI is, a, is, is of limited application in, in civil engineering and infrastructure through to where is it, when is it going to be, you know, our go-to tool to deliver things. And similarly, um, and, and it's looking like the pandemic and the recovery from it is going to accelerate it. How quickly are we going to move to a, to a green, green energy uh, world where, where we have much uh, lower reliance on, on fossil fuels and, and green energy is our, is our driving force? And, and we, I touched on it before, you know, understanding how we, we mitigate the, the risks through, say, new battery technologies. So the, the report that we produced has those four scenarios. And, and probably what's most interesting is it, are the signposts that we identified to help us see when one of those scenarios or when parts of more than one of those scenarios starts to come true. And if we can start to see those things happening, like, for example, new battery technologies invented or AI becomes more commonplace uh, th- through the release of new software or new tools uh, or new entrants to the market. You know, if, if a large uh, tech company d- decides to seriously get involved in, in infrastructure, then that triggers, you know, that we're probably moving towards a more automated future. And therefore, we as an organization have have some thoughts about how we how we should respond if that happens. And, and those scenarios allow us to have a much wider view of the future than, than just generating a a single vision that is almost certain, 99.9% certain to be wrong. Having those four broad scenarios gives us much more scope to be right in that future. Really interesting. Well, that is us today. So Ian, 
thank you so much for taking the time to to chat to us. This is on top of a of a busy day job. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Thanks very much. It's been been really interesting. Look forward to uh to to hearing the output. Great stuff. Well, listeners, for additional reading, Ian wrote a thought leadership piece called ACOM's Challenge 2030, which we've referred to throughout this episode, and we'll we'll, we'll share it after. Thank you very much for tuning in again to the Changing Construction podcast brought to you by Arab's Mail Manager. Please do tune in for future episodes. We, we release them every week. Have a good one.